Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome, and know that we're happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. This is a little rushed because I'm recording this literally two and a half hours before it's supposed to go live because I completely forgot about the episode. Thank you for listening. Here's here's the story. The Horror Horn by E.F. Benson. For the past ten days, Alhubel had basked in the radiant midwinter weather proper to its eminence of over 6,000 feet. From rising to setting, the sun, so surprising to those who have hitherto associated it with a pale, tepid plate indistinctly shining through the murky air of England, had blazed its way across the sparkling blue, and every night the serene and windless frost had made the stars sparkle like illuminated diamond dust. Sufficient snow had fallen before Christmas to content the skiers, and the big rink, sprinkled every evening, had given the skaters each morning a fresh surface on which to perform their slippery antics. Bridge and dancing served to while away the greater part of the night, and to me, now for the first time tasting the joys of a winter in the Engadine, it seemed that a new heaven and a new earth had been lighted, warmed, and refrigerated for the special benefit of those who, like myself, had been wise enough to save up their days of holiday for the winter. But a break came in these ideal conditions. One afternoon, the sun grew vapor-veiled, and up the valley from the northwest, a wind, frozen with miles of travel over ice-bound hillsides, began scouting through the calm halls of the heavens. Soon it grew dusted with snow, first in small flakes driven almost horizontally before its congealing breath, and then in larger tufts as of swans down. And though all day, for a fortnight before the fate of nations and life and death had seemed to me of far less importance than to get certain tracings of the skate blades on the ice of proper shape and size, it now seemed that the one paramount consideration was to hurry back to the hotel for shelter. It was wiser to leave rocking turns alone than to be frozen in their quest. I had come out here with my cousin, Professor Ingram, the celebrated physiologist and alpine climber. During the serenity of the last fortnight, he had made a couple of notable winter ascents, but this morning his weather wisdom had mistrusted the signs of the heavens, and instead of attempting the ascent of the Pispasug, he had waited to see whether his misgivings justified themselves. So there he sat, now in the hall of the admirable hotel, with his feet on the hot water pipes and the latest delivery of the English post in his hands. This contained a pamphlet concerning the result of the Mount Everest expedition, of which he had just finished the perusal when I entered. A very interesting report, he said, passing it to me, and they certainly deserve to succeed next year, but who can tell when that final 6,000 feet may entail? 6,000 feet more when you have already accomplished 23,000 does not seem much, but at present no one knows whether the human frame can stand exertion at such a height. It may affect not the lungs and heart only, but possibly the brain. Delirious hallucinations may occur. In fact, if I did not know better, I should have said that one such hallucination had occurred to the climbers already. And what was that? I asked. You will find that they thought they came across the tracks of some naked human foot at a great altitude. That looks at first sight like an hallucination. What more natural than that a brain, excited and exhilarated by the extreme height, should have interpreted certain marks in the snow as the footprints of a human being? Every bodily organ in these altitudes is exerting itself to the utmost to do its work, and the brain seizes on those marks in the snow and says, Yes, I'm all right, I'm doing my job, and I perceive marks in the snow which I affirm are human footprints. You know, even at this altitude, how restless and eager the brain is, 
how vividly, as you told me, you dream at night. Multiply that stimulus and that consequent eagerness and restlessness by three, and how natural that the brain should harbor illusions. What, after all, is the delirium which often accompanies high fever, but the effect of the brain to do its work under the pressure of feverish conditions? It is so eager to continue perceiving that it perceives things which have no existence. And yet, you don't think that these naked human footprints were illusions, said I. You told me you would have thought so if you had not known better. He shifted in his chair and looked out of the window a moment. The air was thick now with the density of the big snowflakes that were driven along by the squealing northwest gale. Quite so, he said. In all probability, the human footprints were real human footprints. I expect that they were the footprints, anyhow, of a being more nearly a man than anything else. My reason for saying so is that I know such beings exist. I have even seen quite near at hand, and I assure you I did not wish to be the nearer in spite of my intense curiosity, the creature, shall we say, which would make such footprints. And if the snow was not so dense, I could show you the place where I saw him. He pointed straight out of the window, where across the valley lies the huge tower of the Ungahoya horn, with the curved pinnacle of rock at the top like some gigantic rhinoceros horn. On one side only, as I knew, was the mountain practicable, and that for none but the finest climbers. On the other three, a succession of ledges and precipices rendered it unscalable. Two thousand feet of sheer rock formed the tower. Below were five hundred feet of fallen boulders, up to the edge of which grow dense woods of larch and pine. Upon the Ungahoya horn, I asked. Yes, up till twenty years ago it had never been ascended, and I, like several others, spent a lot of time in trying to find a route up it. My guide and I sometimes spent three nights together at the hut beside the Blumen Glacier, prowling round it, and it was by luck, really, that we found the route, for the mountain looks even more impracticable from the far side than it does from this. But one day we found a long transverse fissure in the side which led to a negotiable ledge, then there came a slanting ice coulier, which you could not see till you got to the foot of it. However, I need not go into that. The big room where we sat was filling up with cheerful groups driven indoors by this sudden gale and snowfall, and the cackle of merry tongues grew loud. The band, too, that invariable appanage of tea-time at Swiss resorts, had begun to tune up the usual potpourri from the works of Puccini. Next moment the sugary, sentimental medleys began. "'Strange contrast,' said Ingram." Here we are, sitting warm and cosy, our ears pleasantly tickled with these little baby tunes, and outside is the great storm growing more violent every moment, and swirling round the austere cliffs of the Ungahoya horn, the horror horn, as indeed it was to me. I want to hear all about it, I said. Every detail. Make a short story long, if it's short. I want to know why it's your horror horn. Well, Chanton and I, he was my guide, used to spend days prowling about the cliffs, making a little progress on one side and then being stopped and gaining perhaps five hundred feet on another side, and then being confronted by some insuperable obstacle till the day when, by luck, we found the route. Chanton never liked the job, for some reason that I could not fathom. It was not because of the difficulty or danger of the climbing, for he was the most fearless man I have ever met when dealing with rocks and ice, but he was always insistent that we should get off the mountain and back to the Bloomin' Hut before sunset. He was scarcely easy, even when we had got back to shelter and locked and barred the door, and I well remember one night when we ate our supper. We heard some animal, a wolf probably, howling somewhere out in the night. A positive panic seized him, and I don't think he closed his eyes till morning. It struck me then that there might be some grisly legend about the mountain, connected possibly with its name, and next day I asked him why the peak was called the Horror Horn. He put the question off at first, and said that, like the Shrek Horn, its name was due to its precipices and falling stones, 
but when I pressed him further, he acknowledged that there was a legend about it which his father had told him. There were creatures, so it was supposed, that lived in its caves, things human in shape and covered except for their face and hands with long black hair. They were dwarves in size, four feet high or thereabouts, but of prodigious strength and agility, remnants of some wild primeval race. It seemed that they were still in an upward stage of evolution, or so I guessed, for the story ran that sometimes girls had been carried off by them, not as prey, and not for any such fate as for those captured by cannibals, but to be bred from. Young men also had been raped by them, to be mated with the females of their tribe. All this looked as if the creatures, as I said, were tending towards humanity. But naturally, I did not believe a word of it as applied to the conditions of the present day. Centuries ago, conceivably, there may have been such beings— and with the extraordinary tenacity of tradition, the news of this had been handed down and was still current round the halves of the peasants. As for their numbers, Chanton told me that three had been once seen together by a man who, owing to his swiftness on skis, had escaped to tell the tale. This man, he averred, was no other than his grandfather, who had been benighted one winter evening as he passed through the dense woods below the Ungahoya Horn, and Chanton supposed that they had been driven down to these lower altitudes in search of food during severe winter weather, for otherwise the recorded sights of them had always taken place among the rocks of the peak itself. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run, sometimes on all fours in the manner of beasts, and their howls were just such as they had heard that night in the bloomin' hut. Such at any rate was the story Chanton told me, and like you, I regarded it as the very moonshine of superstition. But the very next day, I had reason to reconsider my judgment about it. It was on that day that, after a week of exploration, we hit on the only route at present known to the top of our peak. We started as soon as there was light enough to climb by, for, as you may guess, on very difficult rocks it is impossible to climb by lantern or moonlight. We hit on the long fissure I have spoken of, we explored the ledge which from below seemed to end in nothingness, and with an hour's step-cutting ascended the coulier which led upwards from it. From there onwards it was a rock-climb, certainly of considerable difficulty, but with no heart-breaking discoveries ahead and it was about nine in the morning that we stood on the top. We did not wait long there, for that side of the mountain is raked by falling stones, loosened when the sun grows hot from the ice that holds them, and we made haste to pass the ledge where the falls are most frequent. After that there was the long fissure to descend, a matter of no great difficulty, and we were at the end of our work by midday, both of us, as you may imagine, in the state of the highest elation. A long and tiresome scramble along the huge boulders at the foot of the cliff then lay before us, here the hillside is very porous, and great caves extend far into the mountain. We had unroped at the base of the fissure, and were picking our way as seemed good to either of us among these fallen rocks, many of them bigger than an ordinary house, when, on coming round the corner of one of these, I saw that which made it clear that the stories Chanton had told me were no figment of traditional superstition. Not twenty yards in front of me lay one of the beings of which he had spoken. There it sprawled, naked and basking on its back, with face turned up to the sun, which its narrow eyes regarded unwinking. In form it was completely human, but the growth of hair that covered limbs and trunk alike almost completely hid the sun-tanned skin beneath. But its face, save for the down on its cheeks and chin, was hairless, and I looked on a countenance the sensual and malevolent bestiality of which froze me with horror. Had the creature been an animal, one would have scarcely felt a shudder at the gross animalism of it. The horror lay in the fact that lay in the fact that it was a man. There lay by it a couple of gnawed bones, and its meal finished, it was lazily licking its protuberant lips from which came a purring murmur of content. 
With one hand, it scratched the thick hair on its belly. In the other, it held one of these bones, which presently split in half beneath the pressure of its finger and thumb. But my horror was not based on the information of what happened to those men whom these creatures caught. It was due only to my proximity to a thing so human and so infernal, the peak of which the ascent had a moment ago filled us with such elated satisfaction, became to me an Ungahoya horn indeed, for it was the home of beings more awful than the delirium of nightmare could ever have conceived. Chanton was a dozen paces behind me, and with a backward wave of my hand I caused him to halt. Then, withdrawing myself with infinite precaution so as not to attract the gaze of that basking creature, I slipped back round the rock, whispered to him what I had seen, and with blanched faces we made a long detour, peering round every corner and crouching low, not knowing that at any step we might not come upon another of these beings, or that from the mouth of one of these caves in the mountainside there might not appear another of those hairless and dreadful faces with, perhaps this time, the breasts and insignia of womanhood. That would have been the worst of all. Luck favoured us, for we made our way among the boulders and shifting stones, the rattle of which might at any moment have betrayed us, without a repetition of my experience, and once among the trees we ran as if the Furies themselves were in pursuit. Well now did I understand, though I dare say I cannot convey, the qualms of Chanton's mind when he spoke to me of these creatures. Their very humanity was what made them so terrible, the fact that they were of the same race as ourselves, but of a type so abysmally degraded that the most brutal and inhuman of men would have seemed angelic in comparison. The music of the small band was over before he had finished the narrative, and the chattering groups round the tea-table had dispersed. He paused a moment. "'There was a horror of the spirit,' he said, "'which I experienced then, from which I verily believe I have never entirely recovered. "'I saw then how terrible a living thing could be, "'and how terrible in consequence was life itself.' In us all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality, and who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature sun itself, I looked into the abyss out of which we have crawled, and these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now, if they exist any longer. Certainly for the last twenty years there have been no record of their being seen, until we come to this story— of the footprint seen by the climbers on Everest. If that is authentic, if the party did not mistake the footprint of some bear or what not for a human tread, it seems as if still this bestranded remnant of mankind is in existence. Now, Ingram had told his story well, but sitting in this warm and civilized room, the horror which he had clearly felt had not communicated itself to me in any very vivid manner. Intellectually, I agreed. I could appreciate his horror, but certainly my spirit felt no shudder of interior comprehension. "'But it is odd,' I said, "'that your keen interest in physiology did not disperse your qualms. "'You were looking, so I take it, at some form of man "'more remote, probably, than the earliest human remains. "'Did not something inside you say, "'This is of absorbing significance?' "'He shook his head. "'No, I only wanted to get away,' said he. It was not, as I have told you, the terror of what, according to Chanton's story, might await us if we were captured. It was sheer horror at the creature itself. I quaked at it. The snowstorm and the gale increased in violence that night, and I slept uneasily, plucked again and again from slumber by the fierce battling of the wind that shook my windows as if with an imperious demand for admittance. It came in billowy gusts, 
with strange noises intermingled with it, as for a moment it abated with flutings and moanings that rose to shrieks as the fury of it returned. These noises, no doubt, mingled themselves with my drowsed and sleepy consciousness, and once I tore myself out of nightmare, imagining that the creatures of the horror horn had gained footing on my balcony and were rattling at the window bolts. But before morning the gale had died away, and I awoke to see the snow falling dense and fast in a windless air. For three days it continued without intermission, and with its cessation there came a frost such as I have never felt before. Fifty degrees were registered one night, and more the next, and what the cold must have been on the cliffs of the Ungahoya Horn I cannot imagine. Sufficient, so I thought, to have made an end altogether of its secret inhabitants. My cousin, on that day twenty years ago, had missed an opportunity for study which would probably never fall again either to him or another. I received one morning a letter from a friend saying that he had arrived at the neighboring winter resort of St. Luigi and proposing that I should come over for a morning skating and lunch afterwards. The place was not more than a couple miles off, if one took the path over the low pine-clad foothills above which lay the steep woods below the first rocky slopes of the Ungahoya Horn, and accordingly, with a knapsack containing skates on my back, I went on skis over the wooded slopes and down by an easy descent again onto St. Luigi. The day was overcast. Clouds entirely obscured the higher peaks, though the sun was visible, pale and unluminous through the mists. But as the morning went on, it gained the upper hand, and I slid down into St. Luigi beneath a sparkling firmament. We skated and lunched, and then, since it looked as if thick weather was coming up again, I set out early, about three o'clock, for my return journey. Hardly had I got into the woods when the clouds gathered thick above, and streamers and skeins of them began to descend among the pines through which my path threaded its way. In ten minutes more, their opacity had so increased that I could hardly see a couple of yards in front of me. Very soon I became aware that I must have got off the path, for snow-cowled shrubs lay directly in my way, and casting back to find it again, I got altogether confused as to direction. But though progress was difficult, I knew I had only to keep on the ascent, and presently I should come to the brow of these low foothills and descend into the open valley where Alhubel stood. So on I went, stumbling and sliding over obstacles and unable, owing to the thickness of the snow, to take off my skis, for I should have sunk over the knees at each step. Still the ascent continued, and looking at my watch I saw that I had already been near an hour on my way from St. Luigi, a period more than sufficient to complete my whole journey. But still I stuck to the idea that though I had certainly strayed far from my proper route a few minutes more must surely see me over the top of the upward way, and I should find the ground declining into the next valley. About now, too, I noticed that the mists were growing suffused with rose color, and though the inference was that it must be close on sunset, there was consolation in the fact that they were there and might lift at any moment and disclose to me my whereabouts. But the fact that night would soon be on me made it needful to bar my mind against that despair of loneliness which so eats out the heart of a man who is lost in the woods or on mountainside, that though there is still plenty of vigor in his limbs, his nervous force is sapped, and he can do no more than lie down and abandon himself to whatever fate may await him. And then I heard that which made the thought of loneliness seem bliss indeed, for there was a worse fate than loneliness. What I heard resembled the howl of a wolf, and it came from not far in front of me where the ridge—was it a ridge?—still rose higher in vestment of pines. 
From behind me came a sudden puff of wind which shook the frozen snows from the drooping pine branches and swept away the mists as a broom sweeps the dust from the floor. Radiant above me were the unclouded skies, already charged with the red of the sunset, and in front I saw that I had come to the very edge of the wood through which I had wandered so long. But it was no valley into which I had penetrated, for there, right ahead of me, rose the steep slope of boulders and rocks soaring upwards to the foot of the Ungahoyahorn. What, then, was that cry of a wolf which had made my heart stand still? I saw. Not twenty yards from me was a fallen tree, and leaning against the trunk of it was one of the denizens of the horror horn, and it was a woman. She was enveloped in a thick growth of hair, gray and tufted, and from her head it streamed down over her shoulders and her bosom, from which hung withered and pendulous breasts. And looking on her face, I comprehended not with my mind alone, but with a shudder of my spirit what Ingram had felt. Never had nightmare fashioned so terrible a countenance, the beauty of sun and stars, and of the beasts of the field and the kindly race of men, could not atone for so hellish an incarnation of the spirit of life. A fathomless bestiality mottled the slavering mouth and the narrow eyes. I looked into the abyss itself, and knew that out of that abyss, on the edge of which I leaned, the generations of men had climbed. What if that ledge crumbled in front of me, and pitched me headlong into its nethermost depths? In one hand she held by the horns a chamois that kicked and struggled. A blow from its hind leg caught her withered thigh, and with a grunt of anger she seized the leg in her other hand, and as a man may pull from its sheath the stem of meadow grass, she plucked it off the body, leaving the torn skin hanging round the gaping wound. Then, putting the red, bleeding member to her mouth, she sucked at it as a child sucks a stick of sweetmeat. Through flesh and gristle her short brown teeth penetrated, and she licked her lips with a sound of purring. Then, dropping the leg by her side, she looked again at the body of the prey now quivering in its death convulsion, and with finger and thumb gouged out one of its eyes. She snapped her teeth on it, and it cracked like a soft-shelled nut. It may have been but a few seconds that I stood watching her, in some indescribable catalepsy of terror, while through my brain there pealed the panic command of my mind to my stricken limbs, Be gone! Be gone while there is time! Then, recovering the power of my joints and muscles, I tried to slip behind a tree and hide myself from this apparition, but the woman, shall I say, must have caught my stir of movement, for she raised her eyes from her living feast and saw me. She craned forward her neck, she dropped her prey, and half rising began to move toward me. As she did this, she opened her mouth and gave forth a howl such as I had heard a moment before. It was answered by another, but faintly and distantly. Sliding and slipping, with the toes of my skis tripping and the obstacles below the snow, I plunged forward down the hill between the pine trunks. The low sun, already sinking behind some rampart of mountain in the west, reddened the snow and the pines with its ultimate rays. My knapsack, with the skates in it, swung to and fro on my back. One ski stick had already been twitched out of my hand by a fallen branch of pine, but not a second's pause could I allow myself to recover it. I gave no glance behind, and I knew not at what pace my pursuer was on my track, or indeed whether any pursued at all, for my whole mind and energy, now working at full power again under the stress of my panic, was devoted to getting away down the hill and out of the wood as swiftly as my limbs could bear me. For a little while I heard nothing but the hissing snow of my headlong passage, and the rustle of the covered undergrowth beneath my feet, 
and then from close at hand behind me once more, the wolf howl sounded, and I heard the plunging of footsteps other than my own. The strap of my knapsack had shifted, and as my skate swung to and fro on my back, it chafed and pressed on my throat, hindering free passage of air of which, God knew, my laboring lungs were in dire need. And without pausing, I slipped it free from my neck and held it in the hand with which my ski stick had been jerked. I seemed to go a little more easily for this adjustment, and now, not so far distant, I could see below me the path from which I had strayed. If only I could reach that, the smoother going would surely enable me to outdistance my pursuer, who, even on the rougher ground, was but slowly overhauling me, and at the sight of that ribbon stretching unimpeded downhill, a ray of hope pierced the black panic of my soul. With that came the desire, keen and insistent to see who or what it was that was on my tracks, and I spared a backward glance. It was she, the hag whom I had seen at her gruesome meal. Her long, gray hair flew out behind her, her mouth chattered and gibbered, her fingers made grabbing movements as if already they closed on me. But the path was now at hand, and the nearness of it, I suppose, made me incautious. A hump of snow-covered bush lay in my path, and thinking I could jump over it, I tripped and fell, smothering myself in snow. I heard a maniac noise, half scream, half laugh, from close behind, and before I could recover myself, the grabbing fingers were at my neck, as if a steel vice had closed there. But my right hand, in which I held my knapsack of skates, was free, and with a blind, backhanded movement, I whirled it behind me at the full length of its strap, and knew that my desperate blow had found its billet somewhere. Even before I could look round, I felt the grip on my neck relax, and something subsided into the very bush which had entangled me. I recovered my feet and turned. There she lay, twitching and quivering, the heel of one of my skates piercing the thin alpaca of the knapsack had hit her full on the temple from which the blood was pouring. But a hundred yards away, I could see another such figure coming downwards on my tracks, leaping and bounding. At that, panic rose again within me, and I sped off down the white smooth path that led to the lights of the village already beckoning. Never once did I pause in my headlong going. There was no safety until I was back among the haunts of men. I flung myself against the door of the hotel and screamed for admittance, though I had but to turn the handle and enter. And once more, as when Ingram had told his tale, there was the sound of the band and the chatter of voices, and there, too, was he himself, who looked up and then rose swiftly to his feet as I made my clattering entrance. "'I have seen them, too,' I cried. "'Look at my knapsack. Is there not blood on it? It is the blood of one of them, a, a woman, a hag, who tore off the leg of a chamois as I looked and pursued me through the accursed wood. I—' Whether it was I who spun round or the room which seemed to spin round me, I knew not— but I heard myself falling, collapsed on the floor, and the next time that I was conscious at all, I was in bed. There was Ingram there, who told me that I was quite safe, and another man, a stranger, who pricked my arm with the nozzle of a syringe and reassured me. A day or two later, I gave a coherent account of my adventure, and three or four men armed with guns went over my traces. They found the bush in which I had stumbled, with a pool of blood which had soaked into the snow, and still following my ski tracks, they came on the body of a chamois, from which had been torn one of its hind legs, and one eye socket was empty. That is all the corroboration of my story that I can give the reader, and for myself I imagine that the creature which pursued me was either not killed by my blow, or that her fellows removed her body. Anyhow, it is open to the incredulous to prowl about the caves of the Ungahoyerhorn, and see if anything occurs that may convince them. 
And that is the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and get vaccinated and boosted and continue to wear a mask. I don't care what your local, state, or federal guidelines say. Keep wearing a mask because COVID isn't over and won't ever be over. Punch a racist in the face. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one.